listening to the Barcode Podcast with your host, Chris Glandon, serving cybersecurity straight up with no chaser. Let's hit the bar and grab a drink. (laughs) Hey, Chris. Hey, man. What's up? Yo, you all right? Why are you sweating? I, yeah, man, I just ran to work, putting less miles on the Ferrari. Plus, try to get fit, lead a healthier lifestyle, you know? That's dedication. I don't know how you do it. Only run I do is when I pull up a command prompt. <laughs> oh, yeah? Like, run CMD, pioneers of hip-hop, bro. You mean run DMC? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's tricky. It's tricky, 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 tricky. <laughs> don't you done. Nah, my Fitbit just alerted me that I need a drink. What you got? Well, as your professional trainer, I'm going to hook you up with a vitamin C. Fill your glass up with ice, two ounces of orange vodka, two ounces of orange juice, and quick top it with a Red Bull. Awesome. Dude, that drink is sick. (laughs) Far from it, bro. (laughs) I see what you did there. Well, I'm out. Going to go talk healthcare security with another expert on the front line. You be good, my man. All right, Chris, stay well. We'll see you next round. I'm here with Anahi Santiago, CISO for Christiana Care, headquartered in Delaware. She's a highly regarded member of many organizations within the cybersecurity community, a trusted leader, mentor, and industry contributor on many levels. Ani, thank you for joining me and welcome to the bar. Thank you for having me. To kick things off, would you mind telling us about your background and how you progressed through the industry? And I'm also curious to know what was the driver for you to focus on healthcare specifically? That's a great question. Uh, So my degree is in electrical and computer engineering. And I thought that I would have a career designing robots because that was my passion was robotic. I ended up taking a job uh, right out of college with an organization that I was already interning with. And my my original role was to take third-party off-the-shelf applications and reverse engineer them so that they would fit into a three-tier security model where we had the the DMZ firewall application um, sort of an application stack, another firewall, and then your your database stack. And so it was a little bit untraditional than what you typically have in terms of a DMC versus an internal network. And from there, I ended up getting involved in, in a project that was related to my role, where the project manager just really wasn't too engaged. And I am one of these people that just needs to get stuff done. So I just took on the project management capabilities, coordination, you name it. I ran with the whole thing. And it was a pretty high profile project for a very large organization. So somebody saw project management skill sets in me and started just assigning me projects um, where, you know, where, where I would be involved in the engineering component, but it would also just from the project management side of the house. And from there, I just sort of migrated into overall project management where I was leading all of the large international infrastructure projects for this company. And every single one of them had 
security in them. And so I, I actually, it was, it was, I was in a unique situation because as a hands-on project manager, I was able to experience all of the domains within information technology, whether it's databases, applications, Active Directory and Infrastructure, Telecommunications, VoIP, I mean, you name it, I, I was involved in the project. But every single one of them, I, I, I gravitated to the security components of it. So when I was ready to change roles, I decided that what I wanted to do was take a role in information security. And it just so happens that uh, even while working full-time, I, was, I had kept my my bartending job that I had had from college just because the money was pretty good. And I was talking to the son-in-law of the owner of the restaurant, you know, where I worked complaining to him that it was time to move on. And he just happened to be the director of radiology information systems at Einstein healthcare network um, and said, you know, I think they're hiring a security officer. And I said, and I said, oh, that's interesting. He said, send me a resume. Ten days later, I had the job. Um, and and so that's how I ended up in healthcare. It's not that I targeted healthcare. It's just that uh, somebody that I knew in my network gave me an opportunity, and I seized it. And you know, at the time, this was back in 2005 when the HIPAA security rule was just it was coming into effect. And so Einstein at the time had no security program. Um, I was the sole first security individual at at the organization as their first information security officer and um, walked into an organization where healthcare is so dynamic. I mean, the open systems, everybody's sharing workstations, you've got patients, you've got residents, you've got students, like it's just mass chaos. And I and, and um, they were underinvested. So they were running a bunch of Windows 98 workstations with no antivirus. And I thought, oh my God, like whatever I got myself into. And um, by the way, the leadership who had hired me said, Can you please get us compliant with HIPAA security rule um, in four months because I was hired in in January, and the rule came into effect in April. So obviously that didn't happen. But I um, just over over the many years worked into building a, a program from nothing into you know a program that was appropriately sized and resourced for a major, large metropolitan health health system. So. But through, you know, spent 10 and a half years there, through those years, I really did fall in love with healthcare and, and don't see myself crossing industries. It, it will be very hard. It will have to be something incredibly enticing um, in order for me to leave an industry that I think is so meaningful and that brings me so much satisfaction in terms of making a difference, not just, you know, doing a job. How long did it take you to learn how to spell HIPAA properly? Oh, that's a question. Um, it took me no time because it shouldn't be that hard to spell HIPAA. I mean, it should. It, it's 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 an acronym. There are words behind it, so it it's mind blowing to me that people are still misspelling HIPAA. 
Yeah, for the people that aren't in in healthcare, could you explain what it does stand for? Health Insurance Portability Accountability Act. H-I-P-A-A, not H-I-P-P-A. And it is a law that, you know, it is the privacy and security laws that govern um, healthcare. It's the healthcare's biggest regulation when it comes to privacy and security. Got it. So I, I have to talk to you a little bit about just being in a CISO role in healthcare during the COVID pandemic. And by the way, I give the ultimate props to Christiana Care and all other healthcare organizations across the world for responding you know, to the challenge brought on by COVID and having to constantly uh, adjust practices as this pandemic continues. Now, when you look at Americans' private health data, I read recently that it is estimated to be worth up to 20 times the value of financial data on the dark web. So healthcare right now, I believe is the number one prime target. The COVID pandemic has absolutely intensified this due to the shift in remote workforce environments. I'm curious to know how difficult was that transition for you and not only within the security team, but other non-IT folks as well? So the shift to remote work was not particularly difficult for IT or information security, primarily because a few years ago, we were given a a rubric, a strategic direction that the organization's desire was for us to be able to enable and facilitate access from anywhere with any device at any time. And so we built a framework and an environment that enabled that. And so when the push to remote work came, that infrastructure was already in place. Uh, We did have to accelerate um, a VPN project in order to scale up. Uh, But the interesting thing is that uh, we moved from one VPN provider to another within the span of five days without any issues that included testing everything, um, where normally that's a project that takes 12 to 18 months to affect. So uh, that, that I think is demonstrative of not only how ready we were, but our internal capabilities um, to support the organizational vision. In terms of its effect on non-IT individuals, I think that, and you know, I, I can't speak for our caregivers, but I can only imagine that being forced to work outside of the comfort zones that one has been trained in and has done for so long and not only have to work remotely, but now assume virtual care capabilities, something that most were not adept at doing, managing everybody else working at home and trying to figure out how you deliver care um, outside the settings of a confined exam room, um, as well as all of the new technologies that they were being asked to utilize. On top of a pandemic and the fact that our hospital systems were completely stressed and we needed to move at lightning speed in order to deliver care. Um, When I say all of that out loud, it feels insurmountable. 
and it feels so overwhelming. And I, to, to your point, I give so many kudos to all of the clinicians and caregivers across this, not only this country, but the entire world that have really shifted a way of working on top of stressors that are unprecedented in the healthcare industry. Do you feel as though the link between clinicians and security within Christianic care has become stronger due to the increased uh, criticality of securing COVID patient data or securing COVID test results, et cetera? So, um, yes, uh, it, it, you know, what, what has transpired over the last year is essentially it's, it's many fold, but the reality of it is that um, we had to move very quickly to push our, to push our, expand our capabilities around virtual care. We still had the infrastructure in place in terms of we already had a, a, an agreement with Zoom for healthcare, an integration with Cerner for, um, um, for telehealth. And so the, the groundwork was there, but there were still a lot of new things that um, we had to ramp up very quickly to do, as well as within the hospital, because we were limiting the amount of contact that we wanted our caregivers to have with our patients, and the fact that the patients weren't able to have visitors in the hospital, and at times needed a vehicle for saying goodbye to their families, um, we look towards technology to try and solve a lot of those challenges by putting iPads in the room, by enabling the patients to have apps that they could use to chat with their patient, by um, enabling technologies like Teams to be able to have to for for clinicians to not have to go into the room but yet still have a dialogue with the patient around how they were feeling and what they needed, and perhaps discussions around therapies. So there's a lot going on where technology was being the enabler for this complete shift in how we delivered care, both inside the, the, the hospital and outside, um, you know, in the ambulatory setting. So then on top of that, then we started doing the testing, which some of it is, it wasn't done by Christiana Care. Some of it was done by the state. Some of it was done by other healthcare healthcare clinics, but we certainly had a role in that. And once again, um, technology was a, was a primary driver for how we were able to do it very quickly. And, and so to answer your question around how that affected information security and what the relationship, whether it strengthened the relationship between us and our caregivers, I would say that the effect on information security was additive because we were still having to deal with the day-to-day -day operational aspects of information security. We were seeing a 300% increase in the volume of attacks against our organization, so we were contending with that. But most importantly, we didn't want to be the reason why all of this important work did not happen. And so in order to do that, we had to move at a lightning speed pace while managing balls, in the air that were being thrown at us that we hadn't traditionally had to contend with. So pre-COVID, we were already busy and we, we already had more to handle than our team could consume. And now 
without having to add any more people, we needed to figure out how to do all of the things that I just mentioned. And, and I think our organization saw and understood that level of commitment um, from our team in order to make sure that our caregivers could continue to care for patients under incredibly stressful times. So I, I really do believe that it strengthened the partnership between our organizations. Yeah, I think, I think you described that, that perfectly. Um, you mentioned tech innovation. So do you see tech as being something that is lacking within healthcare right now? I, I don't believe that as a healthcare organization, we leverage technology to, to its fullest capability. And, you know, when the High Tech Act came out and the Affordable Act came out and they, there were incentives for organizations to adopt technology specifically electronic health records in order to receive incentives. There's a big push to adopt technology to some degree. And, it, and I think a lot of health organizations struggle to do so and have probably maintained a level of technology commensurate with that push with a, a little bit of adoption, but certainly not to the extent that Christiana Care has adopted technology. Uh, but I do recognize that Christiana Care has a vision for the use of technology as a, as a true driver for the transformation of how we deliver care. And we have had that vision for many years. So when all of this came, you know, when this pandemic came, we were able to rise to the occasion much more quickly and are invigorated by what has been demonstrable in terms of technology really can make a difference in healthcare. We've seen it for the last year and we shouldn't, we shouldn't slow down. We should carry this momentum into the future, into the next few years and continue to make changes as rapidly as we have in the last year in order to just do better for our health system. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you mentioned during the pandemic, you guys were, you had an increase of 300% on, on the attack service of, of, I guess, I guess, uh, attempted attacks. attacks. Yeah. Yeah. Attempted attacks. And that's not specific to Christiana. That's a statistic that's oh, yeah, pretty yeah. consistent um, across the board. But yeah, whether it's, it was an increase in phishing attacks and, and scans and password spray attacks. I mean, you, you, you know, the drill. It, yeah. I mean, they, they come out of from every direction. Yeah. So it's definitely been opportunistic for attackers taking advantage of, um, of the situation, unfortunately. And I, I've seen the, the vaccine cold chain attacks, ransomware attacks are increasingly targeting healthcare organizations. So other than that, I'm curious to know if you've noticed any other trends evolving from inside the healthcare space and should other healthcare organizations be implementing a security program that helps boost vigilance to their employees specifically around COVID-specific threats? So if you think about um, how healthcare systems have been functioning for the last year, they've been under an incredible amount of, of stress, whether it's, you know, physical and emotional stress at what we've had to deal with, whether it's the fact that beds and ICUs are at a complete capacity and we're trying to figure out how to continue to care for patients where there's just no place to care for them. Mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, that, that kind of stress on an organization is especially attractive to threat actors because we're going to be more apt to click on things because of the sensationalistic of COVID themed emails or vaccine themed emails. Um, if we are a victim of a ransomware attack, we're most likely going to want to pay um, because we've got to get back to caring for these patients. We can barely do it as it is. And I'm not saying we as in Christiana, I'm saying, you know, I'm putting myself in the seat of a threat actor and what my assumptions would be of the of the healthcare industry, especially provider space. And I would think that there is so much opportunity there um, and, a, a, you know, and an ease of, of financial gain. And so those would be my motivators for um, attacking healthcare organizations, because I think it'll be a lot easier and they'll be a lot more cooperative so that they can get back to doing the things that they need to do. And so I think those are the reasons why um, healthcare continues to be the number one targeted industry. I do believe that healthcare organizations need to make sure that they're building programs in order to protect themselves. But I also recognize that that's a real challenge, especially now where, you know, for the last year, a lot of healthcare organizations have lost a ton of revenue because of canceled services. And, and, and the industry as a whole has generally been streamed. You know, we don't bleed money. Um, most are not-for-profits and are really community-focused and care-focused. So making those investments, I think, are going to be very difficult for the next at least one to two years because those organizations are going to be contending with the loss of revenue and the need to also invest in virtual care capabilities and some of the things that we've needed to ramp up with in order to continue to care for patients. So there's that balance between true care delivery and information security. And, and that's probably gotten harder to balance here after COVID. Yeah, I want to shift to privacy for a moment and, and look at it from a perspective of a, a post-pandemic world. You're starting to hear more about digital health passports and biometric scanning. And, and I'm curious to know, what is your take on that? And how realistic is this going to become? And is there a way to be able to secure that information effectively? How should the public prepare for this? Or what should they, what should they know from the privacy side of things on sort of what to expect? Or is it too early to tell? I think it's too early to tell. I can, I'm watching what's going on in the European Union because they're leading this, this charge. Mm -hmm. And already many countries and privacy organizations within those countries are um, pushing back on privacy concerns. And, and, and so it's, it'll be, since we're not leading in this space, we have the luxury of being able to learn and watch what's going on over there. Yeah. Um, now, the EU is also far more privacy-focused and regulated than we are, especially with GDPR and a lot of, you know, that they're, they're leaders in the privacy space as well. But I think that as consumers, we, we need to pay close attention to this because they, they would be collecting a lot of information. It would be... Um, 
pioneers, pioneering steps as far as um, the type of health tracking that that potentially governments are doing. And that's something that we've usually regulated against, right? That's why HIPAA, that's one of the reasons why HIPAA is in place is to protect the, the privacy of the patients from being used beyond that of the care setting. In, in this scenario, you're moving beyond that of the care setting and, and using a patient's health information in order to uh, place parameters on what is socially acceptable. And, and that's a really fine line to, to, to thread. And, and so from, from my perspective, I will keep a very good eye on this because I think the, I think the security of this, we can figure out if we build it correctly from the ground up. And it, so the security is less of a concern, but it's, you know, how is that data going to be governed? Who is governing that data? What are the controls and parameters that are going to be in place around how it's utilized, how it's shared, how it's mined? Um, and it's, it's just very early, but I am hopeful that people are thinking about this. And I, and I don't mean the typical consumer who um, is more worried about just being able to schedule a vaccine appointment, but the federal regulators and the privacy advocacy organizations that are going to have to really put a stake in the ground to make sure that consumers and individuals are represented appropriately. Can you talk to me a little bit about the current state of medical and IOT security in, in the healthcare space. So in many cases, I know it's a challenge and not just in healthcare, but in manufacturing and other industries, uh, just about being at the mercy of vendors and third-party manufacturers for support, for patching, for hardware, for availability. Is this a space that you find is becoming easier to manage or increasingly difficult to manage? And how security-minded do you find these manufacturers and major vendors of medical devices? I know um, it's a loaded question. It <laughs> is because, because it's, I have two answers for this. Um, the first is that you know, I've been doing this for 16 years. And when I first started, medical devices really weren't a major concern because they were generally air-gapped or lived within contained networks. As interoperability um, became more prevalent, uh, the interconnectivity of these devices became more pervasive. And that's when um, we started to get real concerns and when we started to talk about medical device security. But it really took um, many, many years before it became a true topic of concern uh, as, an in, as a cybersecurity healthcare industry. And, and then it's been that for many more years. And the FDA has uh, come out with guidance, but they don't have an enforcement capability, so they can't really do anything to the vendors if they're not compliant with the guidance because it's just guidance. You know, much like guidance on masks doesn't mean that people have to wear masks; it's just guidance. And so, although a lot of vendors have gotten much better, there's still a lot of legacy stuff out there that creates risk. And and 
that legacy stuff is out there, not because the vendors want to be uncooperative, but because it's really expensive to replace and it's still delivering on the clinical value that it delivered on when it was first purchased. So mm-hmm. to spend $10 million of dollars to replace it because it's got a cybersecurity vulnerability is a really discussion to have. Um, and so I don't think that those things are going to be going away at any time soon. Um, where I do think it's gotten better, it is that the vendors are starting to bake in information security into their products. And we're seeing less and less um, garbage come through the door. Our clinicians are starting to understand the concepts of risk management much better. And so it's easier to have conversations around potential products being onboarded onto our environment and the risks that those pose to cybersecurity. So those conversations are easier to have now. And there have now been technologies that have come out that enable us to do discovery on those medical and IoT devices. They enable us to have better visibility into what their communication protocols are, what they're talking to, what they should be talking to, what vulnerabilities are resident on them, and at least give us a path towards mitigating those vulnerabilities as appropriate or working with the vendors to do so. So from that perspective, I think things have gotten a lot better. The second part of my my answer to this is that as we push the care to the patient's home and we start to deliver on the consumerism of healthcare promise, these devices are going to stop riding on our network and they're going to start riding on a patient's home network where the router's probably not configured um, they probably, it's the probably still running with a default password. Uh, the device might be attached to a home computer that's probably still running Windows 7. And it's going to potentially be hooked up to an app on an Android that is running an operating system from five years ago, you know, or on an iPhone 6. And so... We're getting better on the hospital end, but we're pushing the problem out to the patient's home where we have very little control and an ability to affect security. So I think as information security leaders, we have to start to think about how we're going to solve for that problem because it's it's here and, and we still have to do what's right for the patients. And so to assume that a patient is going to be protected when we give them these devices within their home is it's, it's naive and it's probably irresponsible. And so we've got a new big problem to solve um, in, the near, in the next, I would say, three to 24 months, depending on where you are as an organization. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. I would also love to see the FDA guidance you mentioned written into, uh, you know, a regulated framework at some point. Yeah, you know, we've talked, um, I I spent, well, pre-COVID, I used to spend a lot of time down in D.C. talking to federal regulators about, you know, healthcare and cybersecurity. And this, um, the subject of regulation versus standards has come up a lot in terms of how to govern medical devices. And I know that the FDA has looked for more enforcement capability and being able to either fine or not enable manufacturers to continue to um, to function if they don't meet the cybersecurity standards. But we're just 
we're just nothing's happened in terms of regulation in the last few years. And who knows now with the advent of home health and virtual care and the fact that these devices really are moving onto patients' home, uh, that dialogue might change. Um, but I think everybody's been so focused on COVID the last year that they're just not talking about um, regulating medical devices. Got it. So in late 2020, ransomware claimed its first known casualty due to delayed treatment in Germany. What are we doing in the U.S. to prevent that from happening? And what other methods do you find are effective in staying current with the threat landscape within the healthcare field? That's a, this is a hard problem to solve for because that ransomware is just continuing to increase and evolve. And the threat actors have become very collaborative. So now you've got cartels as opposed to just single threat actors with um, expansive capabilities. You've also got ransomware as a service. So you don't even have to be your uber smart hacker. You just need to be able to pick some drop down boxes and decide what it is that you want to do. And it's quite easily done. And so based on all of those capabilities, healthcare systems have to get it right 100% of the time. Mm. And, and the speed to which some of these threat actors are moving, you know, some of them being nation states, it's incredibly quick. So if you're a large healthcare system with, um, with appropriate resources, you still have your large healthcare system. So the number of vulnerabilities and the number of endpoints and the number of threat vectors is is, is vast. And 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 to get it 100% right, uh, 100% of the time is very, very difficult. They just have to get it right once. And if you're a small healthcare system with very limited resources, you probably don't have the resources to move at the speed that needs, that we need to move. And then compounded with the number of vulnerabilities that are introduced on, in any given month by any of the third parties that we all rely on. I mean, we, we cannot function without Microsoft. We cannot function without Google. We cannot function without um, our electronic health records. And, and so I, I, I'm thinking to this latest vulnerability that Microsoft just issued around Exchange. And how difficult it's been for organizations to mitigate the vulnerability for, for, for a number of reasons. But every hour lost on trying to, you know, to mitigate the vulnerability is an hour gain for the threat actors to be able to infiltrate organizations. And so we're a couple of days in and I'm still seeing on LinkedIn uh, the challenges that organizations are, are facing. And this I held a call at noon uh, to talk through some of this. I missed it, so I, I don't have any nuggets to give you. <laughs> but um, but it, it's it's just hard. I I don't know that we're ever going to be able to feel comfortable and confident that we've got all of our holes plugged. And this will continue to be a patient safety issue. Yes, that was the first time that it was reported, but I've. You know, there have been so many healthcare organizations that have gone on divert when, when they've been hit with the right plan somewhere that I just can't imagine that that was the first time 
that there that a patient was affected because of an organization's inability to deliver emergent care. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's hard to believe that that's the first time that that's happened. So let me ask you about aspiring cybersecurity professionals that are looking to get into the healthcare industry. What would be your advice to them? Would it be gaining a specific certification or are there other types of training that you would recommend? You know, I'm not a big stickler for certifications. I I think there's a place for them and, but, but they should, this is my opinion. They shouldn't be the reason why you hire somebody. Um, they are helpful when you're looking to learn the cybersecurity field. So, you know, I, when, I, when I see young folks ask me how they can get into information security, I encourage them to look at the, you know, the Security Plus or the GSEC certifications and not necessarily um, to get them and take the test, although if you're going to go through it, you might as well, but because they can, they can, they can, expose you to the different domains and in information security and you might gravitate to one versus another that might help you to figure out where in the information security space you want to be in the event that you don't want to be a generalist because most of us um, gravitate to, to one domain versus another, whether it's third-party risk management, penetration testing, hacking, you name it. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to the advice that I would give an aspiring leader that wants to move into information security, whether it's healthcare or any other industry, is um, get to know your industry, get to know your business, understand what it is that drives your organization or the organization that you're interested in, in joining, and then build your security program in a way that it enables that business as opposed to how it's traditionally been done, which is I'm an information security leader. I'm going to come into an organization and lead our security team to be the best security team that they can be. We're going to lock everything down and God help those that need access to things because information security is protecting the organization from bad guys and yourself that creates the friction that leads to a disjointment between what the business is trying to achieve and information security. It leads to workarounds that just increase risk and it leads to um, leaders being shown out the door. If you want to be a successful leader, you have to put the business first. And you have to figure out how to build security around what it is that the business needs to achieve. And you can do that by building a risk management framework that really looks at risk as opposed to security for security's sake. Um, And then you also have to develop communication skills that help you to deliver on your security strategy and communicate that security strategy by having conversations that are business focused and that are not technical and that are not central to security, but really central to the risk that you're trying to help the organization manage. That's great. That's great. What is the best advice you were handed while coming up in the industry? So 
during my first full-time job, I had a, a mentor that once said to me, you know, job security has nothing to do with keeping the job that you have, but everything to do with being able to get the next one. And what he meant by that is you need to be hungry. You need to continue to grow. You need to invest in yourself and knowledge and the skills that you want to acquire so that you can take that next role. And, um, and you need to be able to build yourself and your professional self in a way that will be attractive to other employers so that if you ever want to move on, you decide where you want to go. And if for whatever reason you find yourself out of a job, that you're able to get the next one. And so that would be, you know, I thought it was great advice. I think it's it's particularly important in information security where um, everything changes on a daily basis. And if you are not hungry and if you're not constantly learning and constantly investing in yourself, then you're going to fall behind the eight ball and you're not going to be very attractive to individuals. Um, the, uh, the, the other advice that I would give people in terms of you know, sustaining that ability to get the next job is build your, build your network, build your brand. Um, and what I mean by that is be active in networking circles, go, go, participate in user groups, participate in security groups that might be aligned with your level. Um, speak at conferences, do webcasts, write blogs, be active on LinkedIn, be active on Twitter, be active on whatever the next thing is that, um, you know, the young generation is going to use. But really, um, there you go. Um, you know, build, build up yourself up to be recognizable so that not only will people want to um, engage with you, uh, but you will also learn from others. And you know, when you get to be at my level, I'm, I'm not within my own organization. I'm not, there's not somebody above me that is mentoring and teaching me cybersecurity. So I have to learn from my peers. I have to learn from the members of HISAC. I have to learn from uh, the CISO Executive Network uh, group that, that I that I belong to or the Avanta group that I belong to. I mean, we, I reach out to others when I'm trying to solve problems as opposed to having to figure it out um, but for, on my own. And others reach out to me in order to solve, help them solve problems. So the network components of growth um, in our role, are, are, I don't think people talk about them enough, but hey, I got my first job in information security because of somebody that I knew. So there is power in that. There is power. So you work in Delaware, although you're in the Philly area, in your opinion, COVID restrictions aside, what is the best bar in Philly to have a drink? Oh, well, that's an easy answer. Okay. St. Stephen's Green on 17th and Green is my home was my home away from home. Um, but the reason being is that it really does feel like family. It's a neighborhood bar. It's got great food, great beer, good wine, fully stocked bar. But the customers, 
there and the staff there are super, super friendly. And if you're new to the area, new to the city, um, within minutes, if not hours, you will have a brand new family and you will feel completely welcomed into, into the neighborhood. I'll have to check it out once things uh, get back to normal here. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it was my home away from home and I can't wait to get back to it once <laughs> they open back up. Now, I also know you're a diehard Philly sports fan, just like myself. Any sports bars you could recommend? Obviously, you have the Chicky and Pete's. Chicky and Pete's, yeah. Obviously. That's mainstream. Xfinity Live, which is, you know, down at the stadium. Where do we like to go? Um, we've got the Kite and the Key at 19th and Calhill. They have good TVs there. The Cambridge down South, South, um, South Street. Pretty good. Okay. Um, you know, I, I, I suspect. You're normally that, at the game. I'm normally at the game. I am. In fact, I am going to my first Flyers game on Tuesday. Nice. Um, and the crazy story about that is that it will. So, so you know, this week and next week, it, last year is the week where everything shut down. So I'm going to the game on Tuesday and it will literally be 365 days to the day. Wow. Um, that I was last in that stadium. So last year, so next week, last year, on Wednesday, we went to a Sixers game. We went on the subway. By the time we got out of the subway, the NBA had shut everything down. And we were literally at the last NBA game before they shut it all down. I remember that night. And coincidence just happens to be that on, on next Tuesday, it's literally a year from that day that we will be back in that stadium. So my bartender, who's also from Philly, he just announced last call. So do you have time for one more? I always have time for one more. All right. <laughs> I love it. If you opened a cybersecurity theme bar, what would the name be and what would your signature drink be called? Oh, man. I didn't expect that one. I told you not to ask me questions I couldn't answer. If I were to name my own drink, I would call it a blazing hacktivist. Um, and that stems from my Puerto Rican background and the island's love of rum. And it's essentially a play on a rum punch topped with 151 Bacardi set ablaze and ready to serve. Okay. I like that. Well, Ani, thanks for joining me. It was a great conversation and, and I wish you much success with Christiana Care and hope you stay safe and secure. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Barcode patrons, if you enjoyed this episode and want an easy way to support the podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. If you're not on a Mac or iPhone, just visit the barcodepodcast.com slash reviews. I appreciate all the support. Cheers. Unfortunately, it's time to shut the bar down for this episode. Thanks for stopping in. See you next time. We'll save you a seat. Be sure to check us out at thebarcodepodcast.com.